All right, so we will be, um, as we have been when I'm with you, in, back in 1 Peter, and we'll be in chapter 2, verses uh, 9 and 10. As we continue to look at this uh, epistle written by the Apostle Peter to a people who, whose context and whose situation uh, is probably very much like those who we just seen in the video. Uh, tonight in these two verses, um, two verses that are packed with, with just huge weighty truths, theological truths um, rooted in, in Christian identity and calling and purpose, um, there are three questions that I would ask and like to answer. The first would be, who are we? The second would be, how did we come to be who we are? And the final would be, what is the purpose? Why? But before we get into uh, verses 9 and 10, just to give some context to uh, the message and to these two verses, I would like to start reading from uh, chapter 2, verse 4, uh, and then bring it in to uh, focus in 9 and 10. So Second Peter chapter 4, uh, or chapter 2, starting verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't, do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. And now as we move into verse 9. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And I'll stop there for now. So off the bat, I'd say what we, we need to do here to fully grasp and to understand the, the weight and the significance uh, of this uh, verse or this passage is to, to see that Peter is using Old Testament language, is using Old uh, Testament descriptives that Yahweh had applied to the nation of Israel. These are titles that Israel as a nation had found their identity in. And Peter is now taking these, these titles and these descriptives that he's applying these titles to the church. It's as if Peter had almost like dipped a sponge into uh, passages like Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 7 and Isaiah 43, just to name a few. And then he took that sponge and he just wrung it out on the New Testament church. See, what Peter's doing here is he's describing the, the church, a community of Jews and Gentiles, 
who have been born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's describing these people as the new Israel under a new covenant. He's saying this is who you are now. And this is a huge deal concerning the the context that those who Peter was writing to were finding themselves in. Mark Johnston in his book, The Church, Glorious Body, Radiant Bride, says it like this. It's not hard to imagine all the doubts and fears that must have troubled and unsettled the exiles who in the eyes of the world were a despised and marginalized people. Peter's letter was written to encourage and strengthen their faith. His message to them is, remember your true identity. You are the people of God. In carefully chosen words, the apostle turns their attention away from their low standing in the world to their high standing in the sight of God. You matter to God is the truth that he wants them to realize. So yes, while Peter does refer to the recipients of this letter in portions of this letter as exiles and sojourners or strangers, as some translations would say, aliens, he refers to them as people who live in this world with a very real awareness and the tension that this world is not their home. At the same time, he also calls them chosen, and he calls them royal, and he calls them holy. See, while the Christian, because of his affiliation with Christ, can always count on and rely on being rejected by this world, on the flip side of things, we also understand that we have an irrefutable promise of acceptance, and beyond that, adoption into the household of God. We understand that our union with Christ will, it'll bring us insults. Following Jesus, as the Bible teaches, as the brother had mentioned just a while ago, it will mean that we we all will suffer to some degree some type of persecution. We may be shamed, or the world may attempt to shame us, because of our faith. But make no mistake, Christian. Shame is no longer a definitive of who we are. We just a few verses back in verse 6 read that those who have believed and trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. In fact, it will be those who, in verse 8, disobey the word, those who have heard the proclamation of the gospel and those who, who uh, have continued and ended their lives in, 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 with rejection of this chosen and precious cornerstone, those, who, those are the ones whose existence will forever be defined by shame. But we, brothers and sisters of grace, and all those who have come before us and all those who will come after us, who are united to Christ by grace through faith are a people who will forevermore refer to our shame solely in the past tense. We are in the truest and most literal sense shameless. 
Now, not only has our shame been dealt with, not only has our guilt been dealt with, the, the slate has been wiped clean, but beyond that, we've also been given positions of honor and privilege. The first title in this passage that, that Peter applies to the church is that of a chosen race. And from a biblical perspective, in the sight of God, there are only two categories of human beings. We have in the one hand those who are, through the physical birth, are in Adam. And this is at one point in time all of us. Excluding Jesus Christ, of course. These are those who, by original sin, have inherited a totally depraved and fallen nature. The man, or, or would, would, the man or woman in Adam is one who is dead in their sin and lives a life defined by willful rebellion and enmity towards our sovereign Lord. These are people who are completely undeserving of grace and mercy and completely deserving of eternal wrath and of God and, and the shame that comes with that. But then, on the other hand, there are those who are in Christ. Those who, by the grace of God, were chosen in eternity past to be recipients of his covenantal love. Who, by his grace and mercy, were caused to be born again. And as it says in chapter 1, into a new race of people with a, a divine inheritance. Who, while deserving to be objects of wrath and shame have become objects of mercy and given a place of honor and privilege in the household of God. And unlike in the Old Testament, where the chosen people were a nation predominantly made up of ethnic Jews, the New Testament church is a chosen race made up of people from all types of ethnicities, from all around the world, from all different types of cultures, all different types of socioeconomic backgrounds, and yes, picture this, even different political affiliations. Imagine that. I'm sorry, because of our current situation, I had to throw that in there. Um, excuse me. However, when you think of the, the very different the very different social economic backgrounds, the cultures, the ethnicities, even with all those variants, the church, we are a chosen race whose origin can be traced back to, as it says in chapter 1, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the predetermined love of the triune God. A chosen race by God's grace. That's who we are. Peter also describes the church as a royal priesthood. As the new Israel, the church's identity is rooted in a royal family. And as part of this royal family, we live lives of service to our king, joyfully offering all, our, our whole lives as spiritual sacrifices so that God may be glorified through them. As the church, we send a clear message to the rest of the world that despite what they may be living for or what they may value, we know through his word and through our relationship with him that our king alone is worthy of worship and praise. We send this message every time that we gather on the Lord's day and lift our voices to sing praises to him. We send this message every time we gather to sit under the faithful preaching and teaching of the word of God. 
We send this message every time we come to the Lord's table as a family of faith to celebrate the new covenant of grace established by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we send this message every time we gather to celebrate the baptism of a brother or sister as they publicly declare their faith in Christ. And as a royal priesthood, we also understand that we are called to be mediators and intercessors for the lost. Knowing that our sovereign God has designed the church, the local body of believers, to be the means of which the rest of the world may experience the blessings of God, mainly the gift of reconciliation made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a holy nation, we get to show the world what it means to be a people set apart by God. Not just set apart by God, but by God for God. We bring God glory as the church when we, in plain view of the rest of the world, live joyfully under the reign and rule of Christ. At the forefront of our minds is the reality that we are first and foremost citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and that kingdom is revealed to to the world wherever the citizens of this holy nation are right now. We are a people for his own possession, a distinctly different community of people who are not our own. While the rest of the world may be caught up in living life according to their desires and spend their days caught in self-absorption and self-promotion, we are a people who have been shown that the fullness of our joy and our pleasure is found in beholding the glory of the Lord and saying, not my will, but your will be done. That is who we are as the people of God. Now, how did we come to be who we are? I'm going to skip over the rest of verse 9 and jump down to verse 10 for a moment. We pick it up in verse 10. It says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Plain and simple, we are who we are because of the mercy of God. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mercy, Christian. Your identity in Christ, every blessing received through him, every promise for you in him, all that you are and all that you ever will be because, is because of the life-giving spirit regenerating great mercy of our Heavenly Father. We are chosen. We are royal. We are holy. We are a prized possession. Not because of anything to do with us, but because God has been merciful to us. Doesn't just saying that sound amazing? I mean, listen to it. God has been merciful to us. Aren't you baffled how this is even possible? We ourselves are aware of our own sinfulness. 
We ourselves know all the secret little pet sins that we keep tucked away in the deepest, darkest, ugliest parts of our hearts. With that being said, isn't the most beautiful statement that we can hear uttered as Christians the truth that God has been merciful to us? How? How can a holy and righteous God look upon a sinful wretch like me? A blasphemer, an idolater, a thief, a murderer. How can he look upon me and be merciful? I don't deserve mercy. Not from God, I don't. And if we're honest, neither do any of us. But here's what makes the statement, God has been merciful to us, possible. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At Calvary, Jesus took our sin so we could be sinless. He took on our shame so we could be shameless. He was shown no mercy so that we may receive mercy. At the cross, the full weight of the Father's wrath came crashing down onto the frame of His beloved Son. It was the Father's will to crush Him. It was the Father who withheld mercy from His perfectly righteous Son and instead found it better to punish Him for the evil committed by sinners. And praise God for it. Yes, for those who have trusted in Him, Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. So we know from this passage a little bit about who we are, and we know how we came to be who we are. But why? For what purpose? We go back to that second portion of verse 9. It says, that... And everything that comes after that is going to tell us why. Why are we a royal priesthood? Why are we a chosen race? Why has God called us to be a people for his own possession, uh, a holy nation? Why has he shown us mercy? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is it. This is the reason why we exist. The church of Jesus Christ is in the promotion business. All those things we talked about leading up to this point, like I said, why we are chosen, why we are royal, why we are holy, why are we his people for his possession, why have we received mercy? Simply put, we are all these things in order that we may make much of our marvelous God. He has called us out of darkness, out of ignorance to our plight, because we were dead in our sin, and we didn't even know it. We were headed for destruction and shame. We were the Lazarus in the tomb. Rigor mortis had set in, and we were rotting and decaying in the dark. And then Jesus called us into his marvelous light. He called us. That beautiful, life-giving call that brings new life. That brings eternal life. 
how could we not proclaim the excellencies of our Lord? It's not like it's a burdensome or heavy call. No. Just think about it. Is it burdensome for a grandmother to make much of her brand new grandbaby? Is there any grandmothers in the room? By any chance? <laughs> Is it burdensome for a grandmother to make much of her brand new born uh, grandbaby? Of course not. All she has to do is spend some time enjoying her relationship with him or her. And the joy she gets from that relationship ends up spilling over into her conversations with the gals at Bingo. She starts to pull out the pictures from her purse and passes them around. Or if she's tech savvy, she pulls out her smartphone and she fills her Instagram feed and her Facebook wall with, with pictures of, of, of the grandbaby's first bath or the first words or the first steps. Her making much of her grandbaby is a direct result from the joy she receives from their relationship. She nurtures that relationship because it's precious to her. And her joy in her grandbaby fills her up and it can't help but overflow into her other relationships. It's the same way with proclaiming the excellency of our triune God. The proclaiming of the excellencies of our triune God is a direct result from the joy and pleasure we receive from being in such a privileged relationship with him. As we behold him in his word, as we commune with him in prayer, as we experience his tangible love and care for us through the local church, as we experience him through all the means of grace that he has provided for us, the joy and the pleasure that we receive will begin to spill over into the other areas of our lives. As you come daily to taste and see that the Lord is good, eventually you're going to find yourself saying to those around you, man, you need to get a plate full of this. So daily saturate yourself. And here, here, this, is, this, is just, this is my application point right here. Okay, It's not going to be hard. Daily saturate yourself in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And soon you will find yourself being wrung out like a sponge by God for his glory and your joy. Now go and behold your Savior and make much of him. That's all I got. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for all that you've done on our behalf. All that you, all the positions of, of honor and privilege and, and distinction that you've put us, that you've put us in, Lord, in, in, in your family. Lord, we know we don't deserve them, but you, you freely give them to us anyway. Thank you, Lord, for, for the love and the, the mercy and the grace that you've just poured out on all our lives, Lord. Lord, as we continue to encounter your grace and your mercy and your love, Lord, Fill us up with it, Lord, and just allow it to spill over into those, into those around us, Lord, and allow us to continue, Lord, to proclaim your excellencies and all that we've experienced from just being in such a privileged relationship with you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and we praise your holy name. In your son's name we pray, amen.